Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. On this show, we focus on the grief we experience when someone in our life dies or is diagnosed with an advanced serious illness. In the past year, though, grief as a word, a concept, and an experience has become much more widely applied. People are grieving and continue to grieve the countless changes that came with the pandemic. For some who were carrying the grief of someone dying, this influx of grief into the everyday conversations felt comforting, as though the whole world was finally in the same room with them. For others, though, it felt the opposite. Hearing the word grief used to describe the loss of a vacation diminished what it meant to them to have to go on living without a parent, a partner, or a child. For Brisha Wade, grief has always meant more than just the death or diagnosis of someone we care about. It's connected to, well, everything. Everything we love, everything we worry about losing, and everything we hope and dream for in our lives. A few things about Brisha. She's an author. She's a Zen Buddhist. She's worked with people at the beginning of life as a birth doula and at the end of life as a chaplain. She's also supported people who are grieving the end of the beginning of a life in her work in the neonatal intensive care unit. Brisha's book, Grieving While Black, an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow, was released at the beginning of 2021, and it entered our world at a time when the pandemic continues to highlight ongoing disparities around race, economic advantage, healthcare access, power, time, work, and so much more. Her book is exactly what we need right now. It's not long, but it is intense. I read it in a weekend and kept stopping to reread and really take in sentences and full paragraphs. Brisha and I talk about a lot in this episode, her early experiences with grief, what the word acceptance means to her in the context of loss, and how our fear of grief shapes us as individuals, and also how that fear shapes the systems that we live with and under. Just a note, listeners, there's some salty language in this episode, so if you aren't into hearing that or you're listening with someone you don't want hearing that, you might want to skip it or listen with your headphones. Okay, here's my conversation with Brisha. Brisha, thank you so much for making time to be on Grief Out Loud today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you and talking about your new book, Grieving While Black, an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow. I'm excited to be here, so thank you for extending the invitation. Before we go more into your book and what you're currently writing about, can we go back a little bit and share share some of your early experiences with grieving someone in your life who has died? I, you know, I, I probably can't even go all the way back and, uh, you know, name it every single one. But the ones that um, stand out most for me, A, this isn't a person, but when I was around six, I lost my first experience of concrete loss was a 
puppy named Butch that I had and we were extremely close and I still recall that bodily memory and that feeling of losing this being who I would talk to and have conversations with and genuinely felt like um, they understood me better than many of my human friends. Um, And then when I was around 17, I believe, my dad passively committed suicide and died. Um, So that was difficult to navigate. So that was when you were 17 that your dad died? I, 16, 17, it's kind of blurring in my mind. Um, Mm. But yeah, yeah, around that age. And when you were that age, what did you learn about grief from your family, about watching the other people in your life process that loss as well? That is difficult to say. Um, Stepping inside of my 17 your old mind. I I remember this was around the time where I needed to apply for college. I mean, that was the focus, right? And when it comes to college applications, it's difficult when you only get one shot out of thousands of applications, particularly for top schools, to allow performance to slip and assume that I would be given the opportunity to explain like, hey, I'm grieving this very significant loss. And I think that that was something that was ingrained in me anyway, being African-American and being an African-American girl at the time, but woman now, and knowing how few and far between opportunities were presented to begin with and how I had to be much better in all my P's and Q's in order to not only have a shot, but successfully um, hit the mark. So at the time, I recall my family grieving significantly, but also being concerned about my future, um, just because our social location didn't give us the luxury of being able to lean into our grief or just be human and have a human experience of fully experiencing that loss right then. Yeah, and you write a lot about time in your book and time being a racialized privilege in a sense. And it seems like this is a perfect example of no time, no space to really engage with grief because you got to keep performing for school. You got to get this one opportunity for college. seems like that started really, really young for you too. Absolutely. I'm not even sure how young it started. It's just something I've been keenly aware of. And at this time I was applying to top 10, top 20 universities. And at the time I I was 17. That's right. I was 17 because I had finished high school early and I was taking uh, taking classes at a a local community college. And I remember being in chemistry and calculus two and and English classes. And I mean, clearly I'm a writer (laughs) and that that started (laughs) much younger, but I remember failing English um, and not even telling the professor until, you know, it was too late that I had experienced this loss because there is this expectation as a result of socialization that I needed to keep going, you know, Mm -hmm. like I only had one shot, I only had a certain amount of time. Um, And then I I see my grades suffering in in English and and chemistry. I remember getting a B in calculus that that semester. Um, But ultimately, you know, I did get into the schools I wanted to get into. But Later, Stanford asked, you know, what happened that quarter? And I had to be like, hey, I I lost my dad. Um, And they were understanding. But this was after I'd gotten in, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so, I mean, they 
they had already said yes and then had enough time to go back and be like, hey, you know, we let you in. And then all of a sudden you stop caring. Uh, so, yeah. Another concept that you wrote about was this idea that grief can inform our lives or grief can drive our lives. Could you explain that a little bit? When I wrote that statement, I was specifically talking about people with social privilege in a, in a given situation, specifically because of the book is Grieving While Black, um, you know, white people with white privilege. But this applies across the board, regardless of whatever privilege you have in a, in a given situation, how our relationship to impermanence is just foundational. It's something that we are, we're born with an awareness that things are impermanent. We're born with an awareness of maybe not our mortality when we're young because kids, you know, we're kind of reckless <laughs> when we're young, but uh, certainly, you know, of this awareness that things will always be the way we want them to be and that things change, whether, you know, we're a five-year-old who wants to be a six-year-old um, because we see six-year-olds get treated a certain way, or, you know, maybe, you know, we're five year, years old and, and don't want to transition to our you know first grade class like whatever it might be it's an awareness that we all have on a subconscious level but most people out of fear of discomfort don't lean into exploring and embracing what it truly means to recognize that everything our very lives the people we love um, the things we value everything is impermanent and when that lack of awareness is just allowed to exist, it becomes a, a blind spot that still informs everything that we're doing, um, whether it's, um, you know, causing us to hold on to, can I curse in this? Uh, yes. Okay, great. <laughs> hold on to, <laughs> to shitty relationships out of, you know, out of fear of being alone. Um, or out of fear of, you know, not finding another relationship or um, whether it's causing us to stay in a shitty job out of fear of also not finding another job, not being able to pay our bills, not being um, able to have insurance, which is directly related to fear of loss because that's tied to our life and ability to survive. Um, but when we're not aware of those things, um, it's just something that there, there are things that are, these things are in the back of our mind constantly driving us towards unhealthy patterns. And those unhealthy patterns don't just impact us as individuals. They impact everybody we come into contact with and every life we touch. Is there a personal example of a time that looking back, you're like, whoa, grief and my fear of change and impermanence was really driving my decisions and the way I was living my life? Yeah. Um, you know, an easy, the easiest example I can give are, would be related to like shitty jobs, but I know that's a lot more difficult <laughs> too, <laughs> because I mean, there are a lot of people in, in shitty work situations where the options either are or seem limited. So I feel like that's a, that's a heavy example to give. I'm thinking of an ex some dating examples I could use, <laughs> but, but you know, I don't want to put all my business on blast. So um, I'm thinking of one ex in particular where, you know, we had a fiery relationship, you know, a passionate relationship, um, but it was very clear that we weren't good for each other. This isn't an example of abuse. It's not an example of anything horrific or awful happening. You know, we just, 
it, it just wasn't a good match, you know, but we stayed in the relationship, not only in the relationship, but stayed in communication with each other because we were afraid of being alone, afraid of transitioning into something else. Like what came next was such a fear for us that we stayed in something that clearly wasn't working. A a parallel to this idea of impermanence, I've heard you talk about the idea of acceptance and, you know, that that can be such a controversial world word in the grief world, as people can sometimes hear it as you just have to accept the loss, you have to accept the death, and that feels so unacceptable to them. And, and yeah, and it gets, gets conflated with this idea of like, you have to be okay with the fact that your person died. Exactly. And so what does acceptance mean to you in relation to grief, and, and particularly to grief from having someone in your life die? I love what you just said about acceptance being conflated with being okay, because that's exactly what happens. And they are not the same. You know, it's kind of like if, if your house is on fire, you, you have to accept the fact that there are literal flames in front of you. <laughs> like if you do not put this fire out, everything around you will burn. Are you okay with the fact that your house is on fire? No. You're absolutely not okay with that. And it's okay to not be okay with that. You don't have to to shove that feeling of not being okay away. But to even get to the feeling and, and address and heal that feeling of not being okay, you first have to accept the reality of what is happening to your house and then take the steps that are necessary to put the fire out little by little. And then you can look at the wreckage, um, accept that for what it is, and that acceptance of the fact that, hey, there's no no more house here, there's a lot of wreckage, is what is going to allow you to rebuild. And I imagine you, in your earlier work experiences as a chaplain and as a doula, I mean, you're supporting people at the beginning of life, at the end of life, and supporting people who had just had a baby who their life was beginning and ending of simultaneously and wondering like what did you see from those professional experiences about grief and about this idea of acceptance and grief absolutely and, and thank you for mentioning that I was going to mention the fact that you know when I was doing end-of-life care I spent a good amount of time working with people who had lost children and if you you don't know, want to if anyone thinks of a type of unacceptable loss you know you know folks who use that that term um it would be the loss of a child you know if it was unacceptable and, and unforgivable and for me personally uh, being highly empathetic i think of what the loss of a child represents for that person One of the many things I think makes it difficult um, is all like you're not just looking at what is it's not just like a house that just burned down and you know what's in that house and um, you know what you would have liked to have added to that house Um, or it's not like, you know, an adult, not that not that it's any easier. I'm just speaking on, on what makes, you know, child loss a particularly difficult. But with adults, you you've kind of gotten to see who this person had the potential to become, even if there was so much more to them that didn't get a a chance to blossom. But with the child, there's just endless possibility. So not only are you experiencing the loss of this human being that you love very much, but there's just so much possibility in terms of what that life could have been. And that the expansiveness of that possibility also translates to the expansiveness of grief 
experience when that's no longer there. I think because that grief was so profound, the experience of navigating that with parents was very different from navigating grief in hospice or the MICU, the medical intensive care units or, um, you know, the cancer unit and whatnot. It's just a very different type of grief because it gets deep fast because of what losing a child represents. And it's unavoidable. I think with other types of grief, it's easier for people to avoid it which brings up other difficulties like um, repressed rage or, you know, unexpressed anger, you know, um, avoidance. Whereas losing a child just plunges you head deep, like it's head first Mm -hmm. into the grief. There's absolutely no escape. Um, And when there isn't that ability to avoid, avoid the grief, you just, you just have honesty. As you were talking, what came to me is this idea that and this is not across the board, of course, but you're grieving so much of what could have been. You're grieving the dreams. You're grieving the imaginings of who this person was going to be and what they were going to mean to you in your life. And when you're grieving someone who has lived many years on this planet or you've known them for many years, you're often grieving the reality of who they were and less the dream that you had of who they were going to become. Mm-hmm. And of course, that is not true all the time. I think of a lot of teens that I work with who either had um, a conflicted or an estranged relationship with a parent, that parent dies, and there's so much dream that goes with that of the relationship reconciling sometime in the future or them just connecting in a new way and that getting cut short. So of course, as soon as I say an example, I'm like, yeah, not true across the board, but just in the (laughs) moment thinking about that. We've got to include those caveats, right? So almost everyone I've worked with in grief relates to this idea that loss and grief fundamentally change who they are. And and sometimes it changes them in ways they can't really identify or understand until months, years after the person has died. And in your book, you write a lot about how white people really need to reckon with grief if they have any hope of contributing to dismantling white supremacy and anti-blackness. What what do you mean by that? And like, what does that reckoning look like? And why is it important? Part of whiteness and white privilege is that it protects you from certain realities of death and loss, both concrete death. Obviously, like you're not worried about walking down the street and having a police officer or a vigilante take your life. um, and, And you're not worried about not being able to support yourself or get a job or have opportunities, um, you know, that would allow you and your family to live because of your race. Um, So concrete death and also the losses that come with, that come with seeing a certain certain side of humanity Uh, and the losses that come with having your own humanity and, and mortality constantly questioned and examined. Like there there are just so many awarenesses that white people simply do not have to have. And when I talk about um, white people need to come to terms with grief, and I believe in the introduction or first chapter, I said something about um, also coming to terms with death and with failure, the failure part is a separate conversation, but but like with, with death, I mean, coming to terms 
just head on with the reality that getting rid of white privilege uh, and the protection it provided uh, provides automatically means a a loss in identity um, and a loss in self loss of self so that could be your status um, it could be viewing yourself as a good person because you, you have to reconcile like hey I'm participating in the system and I'm behaving in X Y and Z ways even if I don't mean to like being a good person and being a part of this bad thing, like they, they don't go hand in hand. So you kind of have to get rid of that dichotomy. But also like, what would it mean to have to compete fairly and, and equally for resources that in theory are, are limited, you know? Like if we had to compete fairly and equally for jobs, if we have to compete fairly and equally for pay, if we had to compete fairly and equally for um, relationships, um, and I'm using the term compete, even though I don't believe that these things have to be co- like, I don't believe that c- competitive nature is necessarily. I do believe that we can cooperate <laughs> for these things, but just in the culture that we have built, you know, it, it boils down to competition and fear of not having enough. And if some people get to have enough by virtue of the privileges that they're given, then what would that mean? If those privileges were taken away and then you're actually on a level playing ground and all you have is what you're given plus chance. It seems as you're talking, there's so many parallels with what people experience when someone in their life dies as well of a loss of status, a loss of identity, a loss of role, a loss perhaps of financial resources. Yeah, just so many parallels there with the the idea of what happens when things change radically and who am I and what do I have access to at this point? How would you say your understanding of grief has shifted from when you were 17 year old, recently graduated high school student facing, you know, the loss of your father, then through your work as a chaplain, as a doula, like how, how does, how do you think about and experience grief now? Yeah, that's a difficult journey to to track because I feel that I've tripped into every <laughs> every one of those <laughs> roles. I I never set out, you know, when I was 17, 18 to to be a birth doula and their life caregiver. And even before, I mean, even the day before I took trainings to to do those things. Like it was it was just <laughs> never an intentional part of my journey. It just unfolded a step at a time um and you know one day I was experiencing a lot of grief myself you know part of my grief was obviously the grief I was navigating and my job just learning to be a present end-of-life caregiver meant that I had to attend to a lot of my grief so uh, I was attending to a lot of my concrete grief when experiencing people's grief but I think it was for me when I was maybe 27 and was just reflecting on my life and where I was then versus where I imagined where I would be and reflecting on the difficulties that I had in work environments because of who I am as a queer Black woman um, and the grief that that brought up, I was able to see more threads in my journey and, and see the way that those different types of grief connected. So, Brisha, your book, Grieving While Black, an Anti-Racist Take on Oppression and Sorrow, just came out and just passed the one-year mark of the COVID-19 pandemic taking hold in the U.S. 
And it's a pandemic that continues to disproportionately affect Black, Latinx, Pacific Islander, and Native communities. And it was also a year of widespread protests in support of Black lives and a corresponding call for dismantling white supremacy, a call that, you know, in some realms appeared maybe a performative or maybe not very grounded in actual action. So just wondering, I imagine you didn't just write this book in the last two months, but how did you come to write this book now? Yeah, um, I've been asked this question a couple of times. Uh, and the thing about publishing <laughs> is that it takes a long time. So notwithstanding the, the length of time it took to even write the book. So I... I started writing the book without knowing I was writing the book. Like I said, I just tripped into things <laughs> along the way. Um, I started writing a lot of some like bits and pieces of it when I was 25. So that was about five years ago before I, I knew that it was a book. And then I would say, what, early, we're 2021, early 2019, I'd finished a draft. And then I, you know, signed a contract for it at the end of 2019. So I had no idea, you know, this book was in the works before, before 2020 happened. Um, and the majority of it was finished and turned in by February, 2020. Um, though I did add the, the introduction later because my publisher allowed it. Most of it wasn't really shaped by 2020, but I feel that 2020 was a prime example of a lot of the topics discussed in the book because grief hit most people like a truck that just blindsided them um like they were just going about life crossing the street and then all of a sudden here comes this big ass bus or, or truck that just slams into them um and that's because for most people they were crossing the street and treating it like it wasn't a street or like you know not aware of the fact that there was traffic because it was easier to move around the world without the awareness of cars. And then grief came and was like, hey, you know, I'm here uh, because the type of grief we felt in 2020 didn't just come out of nowhere. You know, it wasn't just a bicycle that just happened to show up and hit us. Like, no, this was something with some mass and some force <laughs> and velocity, all the things to make the impact um, super hard when it hit us because it had been building up over centuries from the, the racial protests to the systemic issues that were exposed and what that meant for people in the middle of a pandemic when life just happens, but we aren't prepared for it because we have allowed so much failure to, to thrive as a result of a fear of, of dealing with our grief, our nation's grief. So yeah, that just happened to transpire <laughs> after the book was finished. <laughs> Has anyone um, accused you of causing 2020 by writing this book and having it come out <laughs> this year? No, thank God. <laughs> I have been accused or just a handful of accusations of like capitalizing on, on 2020 uh, just from, you know, random folks on Instagram. And it's just like, nah, son, <laughs> this, <laughs> this book was already done. So I had nothing to do with that. So. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, though, to hear that the book was basically complete long before because I, what you said rings so true of that the, the world is really ready for this book right now. Like grief is 
so much a part of people's daily lexicon in a way that it wasn't before, both for folks who are grieving the deaths of over 500,000 Americans from COVID-19, people who were carrying their previous grief into the pandemic, and then also just the grief that's not a death loss, but the grief of so many other things of our daily lives and what we thought was true about the world. And so thank you. I think this is the book we needed right now. And it's it seems perfect timing that it came out when it did. I appreciate that feedback. I genuinely wish that it did not take the circumstances that it took <laughs> for just our society and our nation to be more open about our relationship to grief. And I certainly wish that there wasn't as much systemic suffering uh, to make this book relevant for me to even to have written it, let alone for so many people to have experienced um, the height of that in 2020. But I'm grateful for your feedback and I'm grateful um, if the book can touch the life of anybody who chooses to read it. Umbrisha, what's helping you right now in March of 2021? Girl. <laughs> Ooh, that's a loaded question. Um, yeah, it's a day at a time. Right now, I'm in a stage um, of my life and, and career where I am having to acknowledge grief again without always being able to take the time to address it directly or heal it. So, so I'm aware that it's there. And and sometimes I notice I can be short tempered or or impatient. And I'm frequently finding myself having to sincerely apologize and be open with the people around me about what I am experiencing um, so that we can have an honest conversation and that there can be dialogue and compassion and we can share our griefs openly uh, and, and really I think that's what's getting me through um, I've been fortunate to have a very strong support network wonderful wife my family you know has been loving and supportive my friends are freaking awesome and because I talk about grief a lot they're open to talking about they talk about grief a lot and we just we just meet each other where we are, even if we feel so overwhelmed that we, you know, frequently aren't able to um, to make space to to heal in the way that we like. Yeah, that that community matters, even if the community is showing up and looking a lot different than maybe it would have if if everybody was feeling more fully resourced than exactly. where we are right now. Exactly. So, for listeners who want to connect with you. I'm going to put in the show notes, folks, where to find the book um, and all of that. But where are some other places that people can connect with you? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's just my first and last name, Brisha Wade, no special punctuations. Uh, or you can peek my website, BrishaWade.com, um, first and last name. And feel free to sign up for the newsletter um, if you like consistent updates and um, stories about what's going on. Well, Brisha, um, I'll put all that in the show notes. So folks, you don't have to scribble down what you just heard. (laughs) And and Brisha, I just want to thank you again for your book, Grieving While Black, an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow. And thank you so much for taking time out of what I imagine is a very busy launch season uh, in your life right now to talk with me and to share about your personal grief, your professional experiences with grief, and also your book and all of your amazing insights in that. It's genuinely been a pleasure. So thank you. 
And listeners out there, I say it every single time, but thank you for tuning in, for being part of our Grief Out Loud community. The show would not mean what it does without you listening and sharing episodes with people that you think might find them to be helpful. You can reach out to me directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And head to our website, which is also D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G to find any of our past episodes and to connect with us there. So thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time. 